Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir Johnny MacDonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. First, I want to mention two people who left reviews, and I apologize if I mispronounce anything. But thank you to Natalie Lacoste-Ling, who left a five-star review, as well as Just Love Heart, who left another five-star review. I really appreciate it. It helps me move up the rankings. And to find out that you guys are enjoying the podcast so much, it really honestly it makes my day. And I truly thank you for it. Also, I want to say thank you to Bismarck Ledesmo Navarro, who recently gave me a donation. I do this full-time, so any dollars I get help keep all of it going, and I truly do appreciate it. On that note, I also want to say thank you to my two newest patrons, Deborah Carlson and Francis Helbling. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. And if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. And don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and Canadian History X, available on all podcast platforms. During the 15 years that Pierre Elliott Trudeau was in power, there was a brief gap in 1979 and 1980 when he was in the official opposition, the only time he was ever leader of the opposition. It was in that gap that Joe Clark became our 16th Prime Minister. For me, Joe Clark actually holds a special place. He's the only Prime Minister I've ever actually interviewed, which I did when I was the editor of the High River Times, a paper that his father started and he worked at, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I've also met him on two other occasions, once when he was walking through the Calgary Library, and once I stood on a corner waiting for the light, and Joe Clark just happened to come up next to me. So that was my only brush with the Prime Ministers that I've been talking about. Born to Charles and Grace Clark on June 5, 1939, his father started the High River Times and was a very important person in the early community of High River, Alberta. In 1956, Joe Clark would win a Rotary Public Speaking Scholarship in Grade 11, and with that he won a trip to Ottawa. And instead of going to museums, he went to the House of Commons and he met Conservative leader George Drew, and he waited for hours for the chance to meet John Diefenbaker. As a young man, Clark was an admirer of John Diefenbaker, who was rising on the national stage and would soon be Prime Minister of Canada. In an amazing way that time works, Joe Clark would actually give the eulogy at John Diefenbaker's funeral. While at the House of Commons, Clark was able to witness the pipeline debate and the Liberals' invocation of closure to end objections from the opposition. And this would leave an impression on Clark, who would return home feeling that the government needed a strong and effective opposition. In 1958, he met Brian Mulroney at a National Young Progressive Conservatives meeting, introducing him to yet another rival that would come into his life later. That same year, he was also working for Alan Lazarte, who was campaigning to become the leader of the Alberta Progressive Conservative Party. While at university, Clark pursued journalism and politics, two areas that greatly interested him. He would serve as the editor of The Gateway, the student newspaper, and was the National Progressive Conservative student president. With the University of Alberta Debate Society, Clark would often have heated debates with Preston Manning, who would be a future political rival and who was the son of Ernest Manning, Premier of Alberta. Along with his time working at his father's newspaper, Joe Clark would also work for the CBC, the Calgary Herald and the Edmonton Journal. During one summer, he would work for the Canadian Press in Toronto, 
and seriously gave some thought to becoming a journalist, but instead he looked to law and politics. He would attend Dalhousie Law School, but spent more time at the Dalhousie Student Union and with the Dalhousie Gazette rather than working on his law studies. He would then go to the University of British Columbia Faculty of Law, but he was unsuccessful in pursuing his law studies. So, with his eye firmly on politics, Clark went to France to become fluent in French, while also taking French courses. Eventually, he'd become comfortable speaking and answering questions in French. In 1962, Clark would be back in Canada, and he was working on the re-election campaign of Diefenbaker. Clark at the age of 28 would become the Director of Organization for the Alberta Progressive Conservative Party, and he ran in the 1967 provincial election, but he was defeated. It should be noted that he ran against a social credit candidate who was also the Speaker of the House. Considered a suicide seat, Clark came within 462 votes of winning. After the loss, he would serve as the Chief Assistant to Peter Lougheed, who was at the time the current opposition leader, but would soon be elected and arguably become the best Premier in Alberta's history. Clark would then serve on the Ottawa staff of E. Davy Fulton, who is the MP in the House of Commons, and he then spent three years as the Executive Assistant to Robert Stanfield, the leader of the Federal Progressive Conservative Party. In 1972, Clark was finally elected to the House of Commons in the Rocky Mountain Riding. As a young politician, his ideas and views were sometimes at odds with the other members of the party. He was the first Canadian politician to take a stand for the decriminalization of marijuana in Canada, and he wanted a guaranteed minimum income for everyone. And this is why many people referred to him as a Red Tory. Many felt that his social liberalism was as bold in the 1970s as Pierre Trudeau's was in the 1960s. For the right-wing members of the Conservative caucus, they saw Clark as a renegade within the party, and many would confront him openly about it, even when he was the leader. In 1973, he married Maureen McTeer, and the couple would have one child, Catherine. The couple had met when Clark hired her to work in his parliamentary office and Maureen quickly showed herself to be a political organizer, as she had been since her teens, and she has gone on to become a well-known author and lawyer. Oddly, one bit of controversy at the time was the fact that she chose to keep her maiden name, which was unusual for the time. In February of 1976, Clark essentially came out of nowhere to win the leadership of the Federal Progressive Conservatives, replacing his former boss, Stanfield. He was up against several notable candidates, not the least of which was Brian Mulroney. On the first ballot, Claude Wagner took 531 votes, while Mulroney took 357 and Clark took 277. Amazingly, on the second ballot, Clark moved ahead of Mulroney for second place, behind Wagner. On the third ballot, Clark tripled the votes of Mulroney and was only 50 behind Wagner by this point. On the fourth ballot, Clark edged out ahead of Wagner to claim the leadership of the party. One reason for this huge upset was Flora MacDonald, who was a favourite to win, but she did worse than Clark on the first ballot. She dropped out on the second ballot and encouraged her supporters to get behind Clark, which would begin to push him ahead. I also have another announcement to make as the result of the fourth ballot. The result of the quatrième... The result of the fourth ballot. In alphabetical order, Mr. Clark... One thousand... 187 votes. 
Monsieur Clark, 1187 votes. Monsieur Claude Wagner. Monsieur Claude Wagner. 122 votes. 1122 votes. Today, I want to talk to you about our party and our country. I am committed to both, and I have served a long apprenticeship. With that leadership win, Clark became, and still is, the youngest ever leader of the major federal parties in the history of Canadian politics. Clark was so unknown at the time that many gave him the nickname Joe Who. Cartoonists would also take shots at him due to his tall and slim figure, often portraying him as a walking candy apple with an enormous head and floppy ears. While many considered Clark to be unprepared to go up against someone as confident and intellectual as Trudeau, he quickly made a name for himself in Parliament for his ability to attack the Trudeau government and his hiring of experienced staffers who would help shape his policy and help his office run well. Some saw him as, to put it in the words of the time, a square. The truth was that he had a biting wit. One of the most famous examples of this was when he said, quote, A recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose your job. Recovery is when Pierre Trudeau loses his job. End quote. Clark also gave the party a focus in four areas. The control of government spending, the development of energy self-sufficiency, the advancement of freedom of information, and the strengthening of federal and provincial relations. Clark would say in February of 1976, quote, We will not take this nation by storm, by stealth, or by surprise, but we will win it by work, end quote. Before long, the progressive conservatives were rising in the polls and Clark was getting the respect of Canadians, as well as those in his own caucus who may have doubted him. In January of 1979, Clark embarked on a world tour that was meant to show his handle on international affairs. Unfortunately, some incidents would instead portray him in a different light. The most famous was the fact that Clark's luggage was lost in the Middle East, and on the same tour, during an inspection of a military honor guard, Clark turned too soon and nearly bumped into a soldier's bayonet. One TV reporter on the tour would say, quote, Phileas Fogg went around the world in 80 days in a balloon filled with hot air. Joe Clark has managed the same feat in 10 days minus the balloon. The Conservative Party of Canada has spent more than $30,000 so Joe Clark could learn about the world. Unfortunately, the world has learned about Joe Clark. End quote. In the spring election of 1979, Clark ran on a platform of tax and mortgage breaks and a proposal to privatize Preto Canada, which had been created by the Liberals and was federally owned. While Clark focused his campaign on slogans such as Let's Get Canada Working Again and It's Time for a Change, Give the Future a Chance, the Liberals focused their campaign on the perceived inexperience of Clark with the slogan There is no time for the on-the-job training. For Joe Clark, this was a strenuous day of campaigning in Toronto, a city whose 23 seats could hold the key to Clark's hopes of forming a majority government. Peter Mansbridge reports. This was Clark's final blitz of Toronto, the city that could very well decide the winner next Tuesday. The first stop, a shopping centre in Don Mills, a Liberal seat the Tories have been working hard at for the last two years. 
Then it was into Broadview, a traditionally NDP riding, but one the Tories just lost in the by-elections last fall. Clark spent about 40 minutes mainstreeting here. Then it was into the beaches, another traditionally NDP riding, and more mainstreeting, or perhaps better phrased, beach strolling. Clark seemed convinced not to let a possible vote get away without some personal contact. Maybe it's because the Tories finished third here last time and faced strong showings from both the NDP and the Liberals. All those events today led to this giant rally tonight in Etobicoke and a chance for Clark to end the feeling that seems to have crept into his campaign this week. That's that the momentum he had so much just a few weeks ago is starting to end. But there was little evidence of any problem like that here, either from the crowd, who seemed convinced they can take this seat from the Liberals, or from Joe Clark, who produced perhaps his best campaign speech so far. The Pierre and Ed show, which had one run on Sunday night, and one run, and one run in 1972 to 1974, when the NDP propped up the Liberals in the House of Commons, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to close that show down permanently on the 22nd of May. Between the attack lines, Clark announced his agenda for change should he win next week. He claimed he and six Tory premiers would almost immediately put a new face on federalism. He'd call for a first minister's conference on the economy and institute his economic proposals in an early budget. Peter Mansbridge, CBC News, Toronto. In the election, Clark and the Conservatives defeated Trudeau and the Liberals forming a minority government with 136 seats to the Liberals with their 114 seats. Despite being bilingual, Clark and the Tories were unable to gain headway in Quebec, which would have given him a majority government rather than a slim minority. And while the party did well in Toronto, they were only able to pick up two seats in Quebec, and were six short of a majority. The Conservatives were able to pick up 38 seats while the Liberals lost 19 in that election. The New Democratic Party and the Social Credit Party picked up 26 seats total, and their support was needed if Clark was going to hold on to power. Clark's win ended 16 years of Liberal power dating back to 1963, when Diefenbaker was Prime Minister. Diefenbaker would actually die only a few months after the Progressive Conservatives came to power, and after another election win himself, when he ended 39 years in the House of Commons. You want to learn more about Diefenbaker? I encourage you to check out my episode that I did just a while ago. On June 4, 1979, Clark was sworn in as the 16th Prime Minister, one day prior to his 40th birthday. To date, he is the youngest Prime Minister in Canadian history and the first to be born in Western Canada. And we will begin tomorrow the planning and the preparation to, to give this country a government which will stimulate the economy to generate growth and jobs for Canadians, a government that will strengthen the institutions of democracy in this country so that the people who live in Canada will have a firmer, stronger voice in the direction of the affairs of this country. And also a a government that will work with our other partners in this confederation to modernize and to remodel the Canadian Confederation, to make it suit the 1980s, and to make this a nation where all of the people of this grand country, this great country, will find room to grow, room to find their own dreams, room to build their own lives. We will do that. We'll do that together. 
Unfortunately, Clark went about governing as if he had a majority government. While he was able to lure Richard Janelle over from the social credits to the progressive conservatives, he was still five short of a majority. He also chose to refuse to grant the Social Credit Party official party status as they were below 12 seats needed, and he did not pursue a coalition with them or cooperate with them in any way. This would cause significant problems when it came to serious issues such as energy, the mortgage interest credit bill, and the Quebec separatism issue. One of the first things that Clark and his government did was to introduce the Freedom of Information Act, which established a broad right of access to government records. The act made second reading and was referred to the Standing Committee, but the legislation would die when the government fell, but it would come back in a different name under the Liberals. In June, Clark would travel to the G7 summit in Tokyo, where he would meet with President Jimmy Carter. In the coming election, Carter would even phone Clark to wish him good luck. In the summer of 1979, Clark appointed Flora MacDonald to the post of Secretary of State for External Affairs, making her the first woman to hold the post. But it wasn't all great. Clark and the Conservatives were criticized for how they handled the moving of Canada's embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The two-day-old government of Joe Clark appears headed for its first diplomatic crisis, a serious confrontation with the Arab world. And it's all because Prime Minister Clark seems determined to go ahead with his promise to move the Canadian embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We now have an opportunity to take an action that will, uh, will back up what we've been saying. It's going to put lots of obstacles and uh, spell gas on the existing flames. A change in the location of the Canadian embassy in Israel could be seen as prejudging negotiations among parties in the Middle East and might in fact work against progress towards a just and lasting peace settlement. Clark had promised to move the embassy to Jerusalem, but he went back on that promise over fears of a possible economic fallout. David MacDonald, the communication minister, told his colleagues that there was a company that was very concerned about its contract in Saudi Arabia if that move happened to be made. Decades later, in 2017, CBC would report that the concerned company was Bell Canada. When the decision not to move the embassy came about, the minutes of a cabinet meeting on October 29, 1979 stated, quote, The Prime Minister agreed with the view expressed by other ministers that his statement should avoid reference to commercial considerations and should be confined to a brief but frank exposition of the government's policy on the location of the embassy. End quote. When it came time to introduce his budget bill, the social credits chose to abstain, and on December 13, 1979, the bill was put forward which would introduce a gas tax that would cost Clark the support of Premier Bill Davis of Ontario. And while Clark said that he would cut taxes to stimulate the economy, he proposed a four-cent-per-litre tax on gasoline to reduce the budget deficit. John Crosby, the finance minister, said that the budget was short-term pain for long-term gain. But when it went to the House of Commons, it caused a no-confidence vote that toppled the government. After the defeat of his government, Clark would state, quote, Only six months ago, Canadians voted to change the government of Canada because they wanted to change the direction of the country. By this action tonight, the opposition parties are saying that Canadians were wrong to make that decision, end quote. He would finish his speech stating, quote, 
my colleagues and I very much wanted this 31st Parliament to work for Canada. Unfortunately, from the first day, opposition parties showed no interest in making Parliament work. Instead, they have systematically obstructed its business. Now they have brought it to a complete halt. The opposition parties refused to make this minority Parliament work. I remain committed to the mandate Canadians gave us last May. My party and I intend to get on with governing Canada. End quote. Good evening. The Clark government has fallen, and it appears there will be another election in Canada soon. The Conservatives were defeated tonight in a motion of non-confidence on the budget. The NDP and the Liberal Party had both said they'd vote against it. And this morning, the government's defeat became likely when the Social Credit members decided to abstain. Here with the details is Mark Phillips. The clerk of the Commons read out the fateful numbers just over half an hour ago. Yeas, pour, 139, 139. Nays, contre, 133, 133. P motion of non-confidence was supported by the entire caucus of 27 behind Ed Broadbent, and the Liberals, who had faced the dilemma of whether to push the government over the brink in light of Pierre Trudeau's announced intention to step down, turned out 112 of their 113 members. The Conservatives had been saying all day they'd be missing three people. Flora MacDonald is in Europe on NATO business. There's one MP in the hospital and another in New Zealand. Their 133 members account for all the votes supporting the government. The Social Credit Party, true to its promise, abstained. Immediately after the vote, Joe Clark rose to make a brief statement. The uh, government has lost a vote on a matter which we have no alternative but to regard as a question of confidence, and I simply want to advise the House that I will be seeing His Excellency the Governor-General tomorrow morning. Although it hasn't been finally decided, the election date being talked about is February 25th, the last Monday in February. By the time the MPs came out of the Commons and into the lobbies, the partisan rhetoric was well underway going to be revulsion at the avidity for power, at the lust for power displayed by the liberal opposition. Disgusting. When they don't even have a leader themselves, or their leader is retired, uh, he's, he's gone, that they're causing another election. But the people of Canada are going to rise up against this and put an end to these years of liberal arrogance and dominance in this country. Clark was criticized for failing to predict the outcome of the budget bill, which was not helped by the fact that three of his own MPs were away. One was sick and two were away on official business. The Liberals, knowing the importance of the bill, had their entire caucus except for one person on hand. In a Gallup poll, it was found that Clark's popularity had actually fallen from 36% to 28% since the summer, and the Conservatives were 19 points behind the Liberals. The Conservatives were also quickly caught off guard when Trudeau, who had announced he was going to step down, instead rescinded his resignation and would lead the Liberals in the new election. For the 1980 election campaign, the Liberals shifted their tactics and reduced the amount of time Trudeau was seen on camera, while also refusing to have a televised debate. Clark would campaign on the same platform he had the previous spring with the slogan, Real Change Deserves a Fair Chance. On February 18, 1980, the Liberals swept to victory with a majority government, ending the time of Clark as Prime Minister. Serving only nine months, Clark served the fourth shortest time as Prime Minister in Canadian history and the shortest time for any elected Prime Minister. Crosby would state of Clark's time in office, quote, Long enough to conceive, just not long enough to deliver. End quote. There will be some disappointment here tonight, 
I, I naturally feel it myself. I was honored to serve my, my first six months as the Prime Minister of Canada. I will... <laughs> For those who missed the meaning of his message, Mr. Clark repeated it 24 hours later. We told Catherine today that we were uh, moving back to the old house uh, for a few years, but we'll be uh, back to the other house uh, before very long. Now, while it may seem that Trudeau and Clark did not get along due to the two election campaigns in only one year, that's not the case. Trudeau would comment in his memoirs that Clark was tougher and more aggressive than Robert Stanfield, and that he respected him as a leader. He also felt that Clark was a better leader than the future Brian Mulroney. For the next three years, Clark would sit as the leader of the official opposition. And even with this loss, Clark still received strong support in the party, and in the 1983 leadership review, he received 70% of the vote. Despite this, Clark said this was not enough, and a leadership contest would be called where he would be the candidate. During the leadership convention, there were many who were against Clark staying on as leader. In December 2007, Karl Heinz Schreiber, a German-Canadian businessman, told the House of Commons Ethics Committee that he, and other Germans, gave significant contributions to Quebec delegates to vote against Clark. In 1982, Brian Mulroney appeared at a press conference with Clark stating that he was not seeking the leadership of the party. By 1983, that seemed to no longer be the case as Mulroney and Crosby had been laying groundwork for a campaign for quite some time. On the first ballot, Clark was in the lead with 36.5% of the vote, compared to Mulroney with 29.3%. On the second ballot, Clark had 36.7%, but Brian Mulroney came closer with 34.6% of the vote. On the third ballot, Joe Clark had 35.8%, while Brian Mulroney had reached 35.1%. Finally, on the last ballot, Clark had 45.6% of the vote, while Mulroney won with 54.4% of the vote. There were several reasons for this upset, including the fact that the party's right wing found Clark too progressive, and others who felt that since Mulroney was from Quebec, he would help take away the province from the Liberals. As well, several candidates followed ABC, or anybody but Clark. Even though Clark had lost, he urged the party to unite behind Mulroney, and he agreed to serve under Mulroney as well. Looking back, many wonder why Clark did not accept that he had two-thirds of the party's support, and why did he call a leadership review? In fact, in 1987, Clark met Prince Charles at Rideau Hall, and the prince asked Clark, quote, Why wasn't two-thirds enough? End quote. The answer came in 2003 when Maureen McTeer, who would write her autobiography that year, and in it, she stated that for Clark... Anything less than 75% was not enough of a clear mandate to forge onwards with the party. He was worried that if there were 34% against him, they would become more vocal in the next election and it could fracture the party. With Mulroney as leader, Clark would remain in the government, which was now in power with a huge majority. Over the next six and a half years, Clark would sit as the Secretary of State for External Affairs, and he would steer the Canadian foreign policy. Clark, along with Arthur Meehan, is one of only two former Prime Ministers to return to prominent roles in Parliament after serving. In his role, Clark would bring about several bold moves. 
1984, he became the first developed nation foreign minister to land in Ethiopia to lead the Western response to the terrible famine there. Canada's response to the crisis was so large that it actually led the United States and the United Kingdom to respond in a similar manner. He would also take a strong stance against apartheid, and he pushed for economic sanctions, even though the United States and the United Kingdom opposed the sanctions. He also pushed the government to accept refugees from El Salvador and Guatemala, and he steered the North American Free Trade Agreement negotiations to a final agreement. Clark would also arrange for 50,000 Vietnamese refugees to be accepted into Canada, and the program he initiated had the government agree to sponsor one refugee for each one sponsored privately. In April of 1991, Clark was named the Minister of Constitutional Affairs, which would give him one of his greatest tasks, patching together an agreement with the provinces for constitutional renewal after the total failure of the Meech Lake Accord. In July 1992, Clark and nine premiers announced that they had reached a deal, but that the deal was met poorly by Mulroney and the Quebec caucus of the Progressive Conservatives. In August, Clark and the premiers tried once again, delivering the Charlottetown Accord, but this was rejected in a referendum. I will go into greater detail about this in my episode on Brian Mulroney in two weeks. With the failure of the Accord and feeling exhausted, Clark stated he would not run in the next election. And as it turned out, that was a good idea, as the Progressive Conservatives would suffer the worst defeat in Canadian history on the federal level soon after. Tonight, Clark put the rumor mill to rest. I have advised my constituency association today that I do not intend to be a candidate that he was ready to make another run at the Tory leadership if Prime Minister Mulroney should step down. First of all, he hasn't and he's not going to and I'm going to work to have him re-elected as the Prime Minister of the, of the country and work hard at it. A small group of supporters gathered in a Calgary hotel to hear the Constitutional Affairs Minister. Many had been with him throughout his 21-year political career. He's not only been a good MP, he's a good person and he has been a friend and that's why he's had so much support in the riding. That political career started just down the highway from Calgary in Clark's hometown of High River. There, people said they could understand why he's decided to leave, and they respect him for it. Given some time, he would have been the best prime minister we've ever had. Wherever I've traveled, that's not very many places, but I always say I'm from High River, Joe Clark's town. I might run for mayor of High River or something someday. <laughs> Clark would not say exactly what options he is entertaining, but he does say there are several. I'm very pleased with the range of things that are uh, available to me, and they range all the way from writing uh, to teaching to business uh, to work uh, internationally. But while the Constitutional Affairs Minister may be leaving, he vows he will never be far removed, and he has this warning. I think the country is in this state. I think that... Uh, uh, if we are not able to learn the good lessons, of the, the, the positive lessons of the referendum and uh, build national strength on them, then I think that the divisions that were evident in the referendum uh, could mean very serious, could have very serious consequences for the, uh, uh, for the country. That may have been the end for Clark, but he would come back into the national spotlight when Progressive Conservative leader Jean Charest stated in the spring of 1998 that he was moving to the Quebec Provincial Liberals. Good evening. Joe Clark wants his old job back. Both of them. Clark confirmed today he will run for the leadership of the Federal Conservative Party, and although he conceded some people see him as yesterday's man, 
He insisted he can become tomorrow's prime minister again. He said it's his duty to try. Kelly Crow tonight on the Joe Clark story, the sequel. A casual stride back onto the national stage. For Joe Clark, it was a low-key kickoff to what he hoped will be his political comeback. Mr. Clark coming in right now. Speaking personally of my past, I prefer the interpretation that I was a little ahead of my time. In a tiny, crowded conference room in Calgary, Clark told friends and supporters what they already knew. He's running for the leadership of the National Progressive Conservative Party, a job he held 15 years ago. I have experience, and experience in the job that I am seeking. But it's experience marred by some famous failures. A non-confidence vote after just seven months as Canada's youngest prime minister, Clark lost the next election and then lost his job. But it was his composure in the wake of those failures that won him eventual respect as external affairs minister and then minister of constitutional affairs. And I believe that I have a simple duty. Clark insists he's not just running to be a leader of a party in transition. He says he intends to become prime minister again. I see myself as the person who can take this party to government and that's why I'm here. Party members say they're pleased that Joe Clark wants to give it all another try. I think this is a great day for the Conservative Party. I think it gives us uh, a real step up, and I think it's a building block for us, and I, I'm very optimistic about it. There is some support on the street as well. Well, we love Joe out here in Calgary, so... I think he'll do a good job. I hope he puts the uh, Tories on the map again. But there is also a hint of the challenge ahead. What do you think of Joe Clark? I don't even know who that is, to be quite honest. I'm from Winnipeg. I have no idea who he is. If the Joe Who factor still dogs Clark after 20 years in politics, there's a new question political observers are asking. And now it's Joe Why, because why does anybody want this job? I mean, the party is, you know, fifth in the House of Commons. Uh, there's a mountain of debt. Uh, he'll, he'll be so far back in question period, their radar won't even be able to pick him up. I mean, why does he want this job? You ask why I would put aside the comfort of a quieter life. Canada is the answer. In the 1998 leadership convention, Clark took 48.5% of the votes on the first ballot and 77.5% on the second ballot, becoming leader of the party once again. This time, instead of coming into a party on the rise, Clark was in a party that was at its lowest point. It was the fifth party in the House of Commons, was $10 million in debt, and had nearly no power. Clark also had to get re-elected back into Parliament, and that would take two years. In September 2000, Clark won a by-election in a riding in Nova Scotia, and he was re-elected two months later in a general election as the MP for Calgary Centre. Under Clark, the party improved but only won 12 seats, remaining in fifth place, but still hanging on to its official party status. From 2000 to 2002, Clark was yearly selected as the most effective opposition leader, and Chretien would often refer to Clark as the leader of the official opposition, even though he was not as the Canadian Alliance was the official opposition. Both Chretien and Clark actually had a very deep mutual respect for each other, dating back to the 1970s. Clark would see his popularity rise during these years, while the Liberals were beginning to lose support. Clark was able to take the party from the 5th place party to the 4th place party thanks to defections from other parties, 
and during the toughest years for the Progressive Conservative Party, many felt that Clark was able to sustain its relevance even while other populist parties were on the rise. In 2002, Stephen Harper became the leader of the Canadian Alliance and he wanted to merge with the Progressive Conservatives, which Clark refused. That same year, Clark resigned as the leader of the Progressive Conservatives once again, and he was succeeded by Peter McKay on May 31, 2003. McKay had stated that he would not merge with the Alliance, but soon after went back on that decision, and the two parties merged together to create the Conservative Party of Canada. In June of 2004, Clark retired from the House of Commons, and by this point he was sitting as an independent, having refused to join the new Conservative Party of Canada, which had been created by that merger of the Canadian Alliance and Progressive Conservatives. On his last day as an MP, he would state, quote, I am very troubled by the disappearance of my party, end quote. I have to say, Mr. Speaker, that I preferred these parliamentary tributes when they were about somebody else. <laughs> but I appreciate deeply the uh, tribute that the House has paid. I thank the, my fellow Albertan, the Deputy Prime Minister, for uh, her uh, remarks. I want to thank the uh, Leader of the Opposition, and more particularly his very engaging son, Benjamin. There. Uh, uh, and of course... The leader of the Bloc Québécois, who is quite right that we don't agree on some fundamental issues, but I think both on my part and on his part, we appreciate the sincerity of commitment towards our goals that have been shown. He is a bit less bilingual than I am. But that happens. My colleague from the NDP, my colleague and friend, and dare I say so, former youth member of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, when they're... When there was such a thing... Um... <laughs> In retirement, Clark has kept very busy. He would lead international observer teams overseeing elections in Pakistan, the Dominion Republic, Cameroon, Mexico, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Lebanon, and Nigeria. In 2006, he took a position as Professor of Practice for Public-Private Sector Partnerships at McGill University. He also served as the Vice Chairman of the Global Leadership Foundation, which consists of former heads of state and diplomats, who offer discreet advice and mentoring on governance to developing nation governments. In November of 2007, a man came up to Clark on the street in Montreal, asked him if he was the former Prime Minister, and Clark said he was, and the man punched him and fled. In the incident, Clark just sustained a bloody nose. In 2013, Clark would publish How We Lead, Canada in a Century of Change. In 2020, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau appointed Clark as a special envoy for Canada's bid for a UN Security Council seat. Clark has been honoured throughout Canada. He was awarded the Order of Canada and is a member of the Alberta Order of Excellence. He is an honorary chief of the Samson Cree First Nation and was the first recipient of the Vimy Award, given to Canadian citizens who have made outstanding contributions to the security of Canada 
and the preservation of its democratic values. In a 1999 survey of the first 20 prime ministers, Clark finished 15th. The Joe Clark School in High River is also named for Clark, and the boyhood home of Clark, located in High River, is currently registered as a provincial historic resource. And one more record that he holds, no prime minister in history has had a long of retirement from being prime minister as Joe Clark has. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Prime Minister Joe Clark. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurie-Anne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Maclean's, Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, Alberta.ca, Collections Canada, The Canada Guide, and Library and Archives Canada. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.